The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes, and welcome to Recovering from Reality, where I illuminate the messy and magical path of coming home to yourself. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, we're serving up the ultimate truth. Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So, are you ready to recover from reality? I don't shame serial monogamy either because we're different people at different stages of our lives. But I do push back, like you're saying, on the being baffled at our ability to love multiple people in our lifetime. Um, Sometimes that happens one after the other. Sometimes they overlap. You know, it's not necessary. Uh, I think that there's, um, we can get into a conversation of is it an orientation or is it a choice? (laughs) That's a big debate going on right now. But, you know, even if it is something you notice about yourself, you don't have to pursue it, you know? But I think making the conversation taboo and making it bad and wrong just doesn't serve anyone. That was a quick clip from this week's episode with Morgan from Chill Polyamory. That is her account. I found her on TikTok and I loved what she had to say. I have to admit when I first was opening into this non-monogamy situation, I had no fucking clue what I was doing. Um, And I know that a lot of you guys are curious too. And so I thought to myself, I should just have an expert on to sit down and talk about the different dynamics and like what non-monogamy actually looks like and how it's really in a lot of ways, like calling back our own autonomy and stepping into and figuring out what our desires are and sharing space with, you know, beautiful humans and evolving together and exploring our our sexuality further. And so, you know, I know that she's a wealth of knowledge and has so much good stuff to share with us this week. So if you've ever been curious about open relationships or non-monogamy, and you're interested in looking into the different aspects of this, like, do I structure this as a non-hierarchical relationship or, you know, do I have a primary partner? Questions like that. I mean, we are diving into it all. So with that, I will keep this week's intro short and tell you guys that I'm sending you all so much love. And here's this week's episode with Morgan. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Of course. My audience is going to love this episode because they've been so invested in this pretty new development in my relationship. And that is being in an open, ethically non-monogamous marriage now. So I would love it if you could give my audience a brief history of the origins of monogamy and then following up with why you think culturally more and more people are becoming open to the idea of being in non-monogamous relationships. 
Sure. So, um, yeah, I'm not a sociologist, so I couldn't really speak to the uh, origins of monogamy necessarily, but I can speak to um, why, especially in the West, we are currently deconstructing prescribed monogamy. Um, I don't think that monogamy is bad at all. It is definitely what some people naturally drift towards. Great. It's just the compulsory monogamy that gets uh, prescribed to us that we're, we have to find the one. That isn't often how it works out anyway. We often have blended families of step parents and, you know, divorcing and finding other people. Plenty of people drive the behavior of multiplicitous love underground by cheating. And so they're not actually confronting the fact that they have the capacity to love multiple people. And I think this generation is deconstructing a lot of norms. You know, there's a lot of disillusionment with what we're told is normal politically and socially. And so I see this as sort of hand in hand with people questioning all structures and all institutions and saying, well, what, what's right for me? Not what did somebody tell me is right for me? So yeah, I'm happy to be visible. Not everyone can. So I put myself out there to say, you know, if you don't feel safe talking about this, but you want to explore it, I'm here. Yeah. I was talking to Evan, who is my primary partner, and he had the most interesting input around uh, monogamy and living in the patriarchy, and especially here in the West, uh, in the United States, and under capitalism, and how traditionally, like men and women had to get married, and there would be a stay-at-home partner, wife, who would run the household, so that way the man could go and work this forty-hour work week, which is maybe a bit uns you know, unrealistic if we're actually looking at like long-term overall health, right? And that, you know, eventually there was a shift, right? Where like that's no longer possible for most people. Most people now, both people have to work. And I think a lot of people are just realizing that like maybe, yeah, like the structures that are currently in place are just not serving us anymore under the current system including our relationship dynamics and structures. Obviously, divorce rates are really high. It's funny, when we came out, my parents were kind of like, how could you be non-monogamous? Like, how do you not feel jealousy? And isn't this going to lead to divorce? And I was like, you've both been married multiple times. I don't Mm -hmm. think you guys necessarily believe in monogamy. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and I don't shame serial monogamy either because we're different people at different stages of our lives. But I do push back, like you're saying, on the being baffled at our ability to love multiple people in our lifetime. Um, Sometimes that happens one after the other. Sometimes they overlap. You know, it's not necessary. Uh, I think that there's, um, we can get into a conversation of, is it an orientation or is it a choice? (laughs) That's a big debate going on right now. But, you know, even if it is something you notice about yourself, you don't have to pursue it, you know, but I think making the conversation taboo and making it bad and wrong just doesn't serve anyone. 
Speaking to what you were saying about, you know, politically we're questioning all of the systems and structures. I think there's some alignment there, like being American, I can only speak to American politics at the moment, that communal like sharing of resources and, you know, gathering a lot of like the gig economy, having multiple different sources of income, not putting all your eggs in one basket is something that we are doing either by choice or by necessity. And so I think that's a transferable skill where we're like, oh, I'm not having all my needs met uh, in one area or my current relationship isn't harmed by adding something over here. So you know, it's, I think, made it a bit more palatable for newcomers to understand the concept, at least. Yeah. All right, let's talk about deconstruction, because I don't know about you, but I didn't grow up around polyamorous relationships or open marriages. Like, I remember, you know, that there was like one couple in our community that were swingers, and everyone knew about it. And it was just like this very taboo thing. And I, with my current partner, um, Evan, we were monogamous for the first 10 years together until we decided to open up. And there was so much work that had to happen in order for both of us to feel secure enough to do this. So for anybody who is thinking about, you know, or questioning monogamy or thinking about like their potential to possibly be poly or to want to have an open relationship what do you think are those first steps and what are some resources that people can start to consume like content and stuff that is allowing them to like open their mind and explore this possibility? Sure. Uh, well, if you have access to therapeutic support, um, specifically like if someone is queer friendly, kink friendly, not um, shaming, that really helps because non-monogamy is incredibly activating. So however secure you feel, the minute that you make yourself this consciously vulnerable, as you know, like every fear, every jealousy, every insecurity just hits us in the face. All of our past traumas that we thought we were over, here's a new way that it's reminding us of pain in the past and like but to that end it's also an opportunity to heal in my experience um, but I've definitely benefited from therapeutic support during the process but apart from that to find community you know online or in person there's plenty of people like myself who are making ourselves available for like peer support if you don't have any friends or if your therapist is like I support you, but I have no idea what this is, you know, <laughs> um, just to be able to talk to people about the practical realities. When you first start out, there's often a cognitive dissonance, like, okay, intellectually, I'm fine with this. And now I'm hyperventilating, you know, like <laughs> emotionally. <laughs> yes, that, that is accurate. <laughs> Yeah. And just to like not shame that, to know that, okay, there's a, there's a gap in between the somatic response and the intellectual um, willingness and uh, to not fear that it's absolutely possible to overcome it. And it gets a lot better as long as you and your partner are communicating and everyone's acting in good faith. But yeah, so, so finding other polyamorous people who have what you want and talking to them about how they do it, that goes a long way. As well for beginner books, I usually recommend The Ethical Slut and Polysecure. And Kevin Patterson has a great book called Love's Not Colorblind, which talks about the intersectionality of kink, race, and polyamory. So yeah, those are, those are my three usually go-to starter books. But 
you'll, you'll find your own resources once you start digging, like just find a voice that resonates with you. What would you do if you didn't have high interest loans or credit card debt? Would you make a move to a new city or start a family? Through Upstart, you can pay off your existing debt quickly with a personal loan so you can tackle your next big financial goal. For many people, getting financially healthy means dropping the weight of credit card debt. But where do you start doing that when it feels like a never ending cycle? Upstart can help you pay off your existing debt quickly and easily with a personal loan so you can start living your life. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment with a clear payoff date. Upstart knows that you're more than just a credit score. So rather than looking at your credit score alone, Upstart's model considers other factors like your income, your employment, and information provided in your loan application to find you a smarter rate for your loan. You can check your rate without impacting your credit score at all in just five minutes for loans between $1,000 and $50,000. You can even receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash reality. That's upstart.com slash reality. Don't forget to use our URL and let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash reality. Going to the pharmacy in person is so 2021. Get your birth control online prescribed and delivered for free with the Pill Club. Never make a trip to the doctor for your prescription or wait in line at the pharmacy ever again. The Pill Club provides personalized care from the comfort of your home and delivery to your door on time every time. Access to affordable health care has become so much harder for women in recent years. Gain time and peace of mind back with the Pill Club. Their licensed medical team puts your reproductive health first with access to affordable birth control, period care, and sexual wellness products all online with a subscription. The Pill Club offers birth control subscriptions prescribed by a medical professional and delivered straight to your door for free. The Pill Club carries over 120 FDA-approved brands and ships to all 50 states. Most brands of birth control are free with insurance or Medicaid. Otherwise, prices start as low as $7 per month without insurance. The Pill Club delivers birth control to your door for free in discreet packaging along with fun self-care gifts and goodies. What's more, their licensed medical team is just a text away to give you the best reproductive health care. Sign up for birth control in just five minutes. Skip the office visit and waiting in line at the pharmacy and join the club. Right now, when you go to thepillclub.com slash reality, the Pill Club is offering a $10 donation to bedsider.org. For every recovering from reality listener who becomes a patient, your donation will help low-income individuals get access to birth control through bedsider.org. That's thepillclub.com slash reality to get your first birth control care package and donate to help more women in need of affordable birth control. Remember thepillclub.com slash reality. You must use the link to make a donation. Hi, I'm Caroline Stanbury and I am divorced, not dead. Fresh off the back of my divorce, I'm bringing real stories, real life, real talk on all things that aren't said. Why do we put so much pressure on ourselves for the happily ever after? Does our love story really have to be one great lengthy novel or can we be happy with a book of short but exciting love stories? I guess we'll find out on Divorce Not Dead and lucky me, you'll be joining me for the journey. So buckle up. 
it's interesting because the biggest question that I get is always, how are you not jealous? As if like jealousy is all of, all of a sudden like null and void, not a part. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And I always say like, while most of the time I don't feel jealous because my primary partner is very good at taking care of our relationship and nourishing our relationship that doesn't mean that jealousy does not come up for me. And I think that we're kind of prescribed this like lie. I think that in Western culture, and again, I can only speak to that because that's what I've been raised in and understand. We're told that certain feelings are inherently bad and some of them are good. (laughs) And like the bad ones are really bad and you should avoid them at all costs. Any discomfort Mm -hmm. is a threat. And it should be avoided. And so I think the way, and I'd be interested to hear your perspective on jealousy, but the way that I just view it is that it's a normal part of our existence. Like there will be moments where you feel inadequate and insecure, and that might lead to jealousy. I think that the difference is that I see it as an opportunity for a check-in and for some growth where many people see that as something that's really scary, that they don't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Just what you said, I see it as information. Jealousy is information just like any other emotion. And I find all emotions to be morally neutral, that none are good or bad. You know, if I'm feeling elated and happy when I'm like using a substance that's bad for me, does that mean that's a good feeling or does that mean that it's, you know, distracting me from the work I have to do? Or if I'm going through grief and processing it, does that mean that's a bad feeling or am I growing, you know? And so to not shy away or uh, ascribe goodness or badness to any emotion, including jealousy. Jealousy is often fear. Um, Usually I do a check-in if I'm feeling some jealousy. One is their scarcity real scarcity? Is something actually being taken away from me? Is less time being spent with me? Is my partner doing something tangible? Because that happens sometimes. Um, Is there imagined scarcity? Like, oh, I'm reminded of somebody who uh, broke my heart and abandoned me. I fear you'll do the same. Projecting that onto the situation. Is there uh, an insecurity being projected back to me? Like, oh, I, why am I scared of this person, but not that person? Maybe they're being a mirror to me right now and reminding me of things that I've already felt bad about myself for. Um, as well, as sometimes it can be envy, like, oh, I want to be the fun one. You know, why do they get to do fun things with you? And so then like a care plan can be developed once we identify the origins of jealousy. But I think it's really important to inquire further, like what is the source of this? And then based on that answer, you can collaborate with your partner on ways to to feel better. The brilliance in this for us has been that the communication is better than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. In order for this to work, we had to explore first our desire get really clear on what we wanted and who we were. And mind you, that's changed, right? Like it's shifted as we became, we became open with an original set of like perimeters and desires. And as those began to unfold, 
both of us realized that we actually wanted something a little bit different. And we were able to negotiate what that looks like. And I think that it is something that was lacking, in all honesty, from our relationship before. And it wasn't that we were ever bad communicators. We've been successfully, very happily partnered for the last 10 years. You know, that doesn't come without great communication. But it's like, we've gotten so good now at checking in with ourselves first and then coming to each other and saying, hey, this is not working for me or this is really triggering for me. And what do you think is some solution here that we could Mm -hmm. come to to like nourish my need and our relationship so that way you can still be happy and do the thing that you desire, but I can still have my needs met? Absolutely. I think it's really important to pay attention to our partner's response to a request for care because something that doesn't, I think, get talked about as much in polyamorous spaces is that abuse can happen just like in any dynamic. So if in a vulnerable request for care, you're met with like um, someone denying your experience, telling you you're imagining it, telling you you're too jealous, any sort of invalidation and rejection of being able to offer you care, that's also good information of like, do you feel comfortable building something with this person long term? Um, but insofar as getting started, you know, I it's like you're saying we're, you'll plan some things mindfully up front, and then some will be discovered on the field. Just like if you're going to have a kid or start a business or try something new in your personal life, that we have an idea of what we want to do, but then we need to also adjust to feedback as it enters our space. Like, oh, I thought I'd be fine with that. Apparently I'm not. So I need to move slower. You know, we can't predict everything. Yeah. Yeah. That came up for Evan just recently. I went on a date with someone new and it was interesting. His, his feelings shifted. Like I don't think he's ever felt any of my other partners to be like threatening to him whatsoever, but I went on a date with this person and it clearly like his ego was a little bit wounded Mm -hmm. and I texted him and I said, is it all right if I spend the night? Are you okay with that? We have children. So it's like, we really have to make sure that we're, (laughs) you know, giving plenty of advance notice when it comes to spending the night or whatever. And he responded, yeah, I'm fine. And when I came home, this man who's usually like so stoic was in near tears. And he was like, I just literally had so many fears that you were going to leave me. Like I could not imagine a life without you. Like I am feeling so triggered right now. And, you know, and that again, that's just an opportunity for us to check in, to have some more sacred time together, to plan a date and to make sure that we're meeting each other's needs. And I will say too, that that's happened to me in the past with partners that he's had. And I, I do see it, it hurts in the moment, but it's also an opportunity for me to go, wow, I really have an amazing partner that I want to spend the rest of my life with. And I love this person so much. It's interesting because opening up has kind of like rekindled that for us after a decade of being together. This, Mm -hmm. you know, deep reverence and love that we have for each other 
it's really special. Yeah, it's that vulnerability can pop up and surprise you out of nowhere. Like, I didn't think I would feel fear, but I totally, you know, I feel like a raw nerve. And so, yeah, like you're discovering in real time, okay, well, let's take care of you in this. Let me be sensitive, especially around this particular partner, you know, and not overshare and give you lots of heads up about specifically interacting with them, you know, just to remind, not just with words, but with actions that they're safe, you know, and with a demonstrated track record of continuously being safe, that fear starts to go away. It does. Okay. Cheating. Everyone inherently thinks being in an open relationship is cheating. Why should you just be married? So I want to touch on why would you be married if you're just going to cheat on your partner? And I'm saying cheating in quotes because Mm -hmm. that a lot. And following up with, can there be cheating in polyamory and in open relationships? Sure. So I usually encourage even monogamous people to define cheating for themselves because the default is of course no sex with other people but the more monogamous people i talk to they're like oh well if he flirts with anybody else that's cheating or if they have like a work wife or a work husband you know that's cheating and i'm like okay so y'all are kind of disagreeing have you talked to your partner like would they maybe accidentally do something flirting with their secretary that you would feel betrayed and they would think is harmless and so I think regardless of structure, it can help to talk about what does cheating actually look like. In my opinion, cheating is betrayal, cheating is lying, cheating is deception, and that can look however the people in the agreement decide. So in non-monogamy, I don't feel bothered if my partner is sleeping with somebody else. I do feel bothered if he were to withhold that information. I would consider that to be cheating. So if there's any lies or deception or omission of pertinent information to me, that would be considered cheating. Any breaking of an agreed upon boundary, you know, that would be considered cheating. Um, I have been fluid bonded, like um, not using condoms with some long-term partners at the same time. And if I were to enter that arrangement and not use protection with somebody without discussing it with every other person who might literally be affected by that, I would be cheating on everybody in that situation. So any breaking of a boundary is cheating and that can happen absolutely in polyamory, unfortunately. Yeah. I agree that like it is based on your relationship structure and dynamic. And there's plenty of reasons why people would want to be married to a primary partner and be open. And for me, it was that like in my primary relationship, my sexuality was being denied. And I was feeling the mental health effects of that. And so I was no longer willing to stay in a hetero relationship um, at the expense of my overall well-being. And so it was like, let's explore this. And it took years for us to explore that before we finally decided to open up. I think that there's lots of reasons why. And I would be interested to hear because you know more. I mean, I refer to Evan as like my primary partner because he is. But like what, how, what are the different ways that these relationships can be constructed? Because not to get married like me, right? Like maybe you just want to, it's interesting because one of the more, Uh, recent partners that I had just got out of a two-year relationship 
and they had said, um, you know, maybe like, I just want to be non-monogamous period. Like I don't necessarily want to have a wife. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a really great book called stepping off the relationship escalator that addresses this of again, going back to a prescribed script of what we're told is the normal sequence of events for love. Love looks like you court, you live together, you marry again. This is in the West in Southeast Asia, love looks like you meet the person you're going to marry on the first day you meet them. You know what I mean? Like in an arranged marriage. So um, this is very culturally specific. But yeah, for for me, it was so freeing to see that as not the only option. And you can do any part of that in any particular order. You can marry someone over here, have a kid with someone over there. People do that by accident all the time, you know, and have kids with multiple people, child rearing with multiple, you know, exes. And uh, it's very cool to me that you can do it mindfully and intentionally. Like I would like to have this be my life. But yeah, so marriage, people do it for a lot of different reasons. You know, I got married for a visa personally. I don't see it as a signifier for myself that someone is more important. I saw it as a way to use the state to my benefit, get a tax break, you know, but not everyone is so strategic like that, you know. Um, Plenty of people marry for like housing reasons or health insurance reasons, but some people just want to throw a party and celebrate the person that they want to spend 90% of their time with. And I think that that's really beautiful too. So There's infinite ways that these relationships can be constructed. When you use the word primary, do you mean that you have like a hierarchy where your primary always comes first? Yes. And that is in place for right now as we have like young children. And I think eventually, because my intention is to have a female partner that would eventually become a life partner if I found the right person. And so the time would have to be split more equally, but because we're raising young children together, yes, right now it is in a hierarchy. Sure. That makes sense. And I think it's really helpful to address um, whether it's hierarchy or non-hierarchy and that's not a binary either, but in order to manage the expectations of everyone you invite into your life, right? Like, hey, if if my husband calls, I'm going to have to cut our date short. Like, are you cool with that? And then a person can consent like, yeah, that's fine. Or no, I would feel really hurt, you know, but at least they can know up front what the terms are. Um, that is a, a in, especially in cases of couples opening up, I see that not be examined so much in the beginning and it can cause a lot of heartbreak you know when you start dating and then someone realizes that they're a secondary priority and they didn't know that so it's important for them to know that (laughs) to prevent heartbreak I started out with a hierarchy um, in part because it was the most comforting like monogamy adjacent form of polyamory, I was like, okay, well, this is something I can wrap my head around, right? And then gradually I started falling in love with other people, wanting to escalate or just not wanting some limits necessarily put on them. And I realized actually I love in a non-hierarchical way. I love 
multiple people equally. I would like to live with one person over here, start a business with a person over there. Like I want to build a few things. And so I restructured to a non-hierarchy and there can still be asymmetries in that. Like I said, it's not binary. So I'm financially entangled with one partner. When it comes to big financial decisions, if I want to go on a vacation with somebody, like that partner has more say in how our finances are spent right? But he doesn't have more priority emotionally and he doesn't, uh, like his feelings or his needs aren't more important than someone else's. So that's like kind of how you parse the non-binary nature of this is like in some areas of life, some people have a bit more say because they have a bit more invested. As long as nobody is being harmed and everybody can consent to it, I think that that can be sustainable. I know it can be. I've been doing it for 10 years. (laughs) So... I think Evan and I, like, eventually we both have the intention of, like, getting there. But it's just, like, right now with the kids. I mean, that that really is the hardest thing is, like, finding the balance. Because after being married for – I got married when I was 20. I started dating Evan when I was 19, almost 20. <laughs> and, like, I'm 30 now. So I really – I don't feel like I missed out on my 20s, but I really did, like – as far as, you know, dating and exploring and all, I really missed out on a lot of that. And so when we first opened up, I was like zero to 60. Like I want to just like go. <laughs> and I realized like, okay, this is not sustainable. And you are burning it at both ends and like mm-hmm. think long-term, not short-term. And I think it's interesting because I did that in the beginning, the first couple of months. And now Evan's in that now where he's just like dating, 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 like lots of different women, which is great. But it's like, we were trying to figure out this balance with kids. It is a little bit more difficult than, you know, if I had kids that were out of the house and grown or no kids at all. And while we've discussed like the possibility, I mean, I have, my girlfriend has met my kids. She comes and stays at my house um, occasionally, but we have no intention of all living together whatsoever. Mm. Um, and so I think, yeah, eventually I would like to get to a point, like you said, where it's like Evan and I are, you know, we handle our finances together and things of that nature, but eventually maybe I would split my time once my kids are grown and live, you know, 50, 50 in, in both places. We obviously know that I don't drink alcohol and that's why I love Gaia. All of the spirit, none of the booze. Gaia is a non-alcoholic aperitif made with only good ingredients combined to keep you calm and connected. No sugar added, no fake flavors, not your traditional mocktail. It's a grown-up indulgence that tastes like summer on the rocks. Our goal is to change the way that we think about drinking and socializing one night off at a time. Gaia was designed for flavor, not function. We're not here to buzz you. We focus on using ingredients in their purest form. So there is some plant power, lemon balm for stress relief, 
rosemary for immunity, but nothing that will keep you up or make you snooze. Gaia is responsibly sourced. There is no sugar added, has no flavors, only real plants. It's gluten-free, vegan, has 0% alcohol and no nasties. It's even kosher certified. Gaia was the first non-alcoholic brand in history to win Esquire's Drink of the Year Award and also won a BevNet Best of 2021. The aperitif is the hero product and is both bright and bitter with hints of citrus and florals with a transparent formula and the health forward ingredients, including gentian root, lemon balm, fig, elderflower, and again, no added sugar. They also have the La Spritz, which is a ready-to-drink single-serve can that features Gaia's signature formula, available in two flavors, Gaia Soda for a bright and bitter bite and Gaia Ginger for a soft and slow burn. I personally love the ginger one. Gaia is available to purchase through Drink Gaia and at more than 500 stock list across the country. To find Gaia near you, you can text the hotline 707-TXT-GHIA or visit their website at drinkgaia.com. Gaia is here for a good time and a long time. For 20% off your first sip, go to drinkgaia.com and use code reality at checkout. Text the hotline. That's 707-898-4442. If you have any questions, always real humans on the line to help you out. You had mentioned when we were talking about cheating, obviously we we're talking about sex and a lot of people make the assumption, one, that if you're poly, you're having sex with like a ton of people, just <laughs> mm-hmm. not always the case. I mean, I guess for some people it totally is the case and to each their own. I think that's great. I personally am, am very discerning with who I share sexual space with just because I feel like that is a spiritual connection for me and not just like a transaction or an experience, but there really is the stigma that like somehow we're not going to be safe or one of us is going to get a disease. Oh yeah. That old argument. <laughs> and people are like STDs. I'm reading the questions going through like, aren't you afraid of getting like HIV or like HPV or something like, and I'm like, okay, you made a TikTok though, that I think was so brilliant, uh, where you discussed this. And so I'd love for you to touch on it. Yeah, sure. So it is a Googleable fact that people who are polyamorous consensually have a lower rate of STI infection than people who are single, quote unquote, but dating around or monogamous and cheating. And the reason is because of the proactive communication. So yeah, I invite people to Google that. You can read these public studies that there is data backing it up. But yeah, you know, it's Absolutely. When I was single and pursuing quote unquote monogamy, I was much more reckless because they only cared about myself. You know, I wasn't like, I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to hurt anybody if I just hook up with this person or hook up with that person, like in my early 20s. And I actually was lucky I didn't get an STI during that time. The only time I've ever gotten an STI was when I was monogamous with a person cheating on me. So it's the nature of withholding information, lying, deceiving, you're going to be shady in everything you do, you know? So when somebody doesn't care about taking care of me, they're not going to care about sexual health and sexual safety either. But in polyamory, the entire 10 years that I've done it, 
I've not had a single problem with an STI. And to be clear, it's a medical diagnosis and not a moral one. And most are treatable. Like it's fine. You know, it's not something to melt down about. I think that there's a lot of purity culture around this and a lot of fear mongering, but yeah, I've not had a problem in 10 years because we are very proactive about getting tested regularly and sharing our results. I've been on email chains with like six people where we all just post all of our results together. Somebody might get an infection, then they stop having you know sex with somebody. Then we talk about new kinds of protection to minimize or avoid transmission. So the open nature of actually good faith consensual polyamory, yeah, that's it just doesn't happen. You know, I think the fear comes from not knowing what polyamory is really like and knowing what cheating and, you know, fuck boys in a monogamy and dating scenes are like and being like, oh, well, if that's what it's like, you know, it's like, nope, nope. <laughs> I don't let those people into my space. I don't trust them, you know? Yeah. I, the open levels of communication, personally, me from myself, I get tested probably about every six weeks. It's so easy to do. Go to your local Planned Parenthood. They'll take care of you. I know that Evan does as well. And the conversations are just so easy. It's just like, hey, I'm so excited for you to go and see this new partner. I'm just wondering, you know, if you're feeling uncomfortable about something, just saying, I'm just wondering, have you asked them their status and like what's going on? And, you know, we've all agreed upon it's harder with my girlfriend than it is with my husband for sure just because the protection that's out there for women is not great in my experience and so it's just like using that extra level of caution but yeah I mean having these conversations now have just become so easy it's like (laughs) you know hey what's your STI status i personally don't have any. I just recently got checked. It's as easy as that. Exactly. I think COVID is a great parallel for people who don't have a frame of reference for these conversations. Like, hey, have you been in contact with anyone who's been positive? Like, hey, what, you know, uh, is your immune system compromised and do I need to be extra careful around you? You know, and so definitely if I see someone not being responsible or being reckless in and around COVID safety, I would never let them near my bedroom (laughs) because I absolutely see parallels with like, how much do you care about the group's safety versus being, what's the word, toxic independence or toxic individualism where you care about yourself to a fault, (laughs) to the harm of other people. So I think this has been a very revealing couple of years um, with certain people. It's been good information. Okay, I want to do some um, Q&A portion here mm-hmm. because my audience had a lot of really great questions. And I feel like this one was great um, because I've touched on the fact that I think it's unrealistic to expect one partner to fulfill all of our needs. I don't think that that's a realistic expectation. But this person asked, I feel like I desire another partner because mine isn't fulfilling me emotionally. Is that normal? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is not necessary to have this supplemental approach, but a lot of people do enter non-monogamy for this kind of reason. My emotional needs, my sexual needs, 
my co-parenting needs are not being met, you know? So you're not wrong or bad or abnormal if this is something you're experiencing. Um, it's just a matter of talking to your partner, seeing if it can be resolved. Maybe it's something that they want to step up and change what they're doing. But if it is actually an irreconcilable difference, like they're genuinely just not available for what you need, you can either get that met with platonic friends, you know, other kinds of support, or if you'd like to pursue non-monogamy, I absolutely love that I have like five people that I, five partners, <laughs> you know, around the world that I can rely on because if one is having a bad day or one is in a business meeting, like I'm not alone and it can feel really nice to have multiple people in your corner in such an intimate way. I wouldn't suggest going into non-monogamy to try to fix your relationship. I would. Oh my God, no. <laughs> do every single thing that I could to like figure out what, and this is a perfect example. My partner Evan is very much so like avoidant attachment. He does the very best he can, but he has had a lot of trauma. Um, you know, his mom passed away when he was 14, died by suicide. He grew up with his dad and that was a really tough situation for him. And he is just not the best at meeting some of, not all of, but some of my emotional needs. That's the difference right there. And mm -hmm. I had to look at like percentage wise. Okay. 70% of my emotional needs are absolutely met in this partnership. And 30% aren't. Let's explore. Are you capable of doing X, Y, or Z? And then he has the right to say either, yes, I can, or no, I can't. And one of those, this happened years ago that came up for us was non-sexual touch. I really love being massaged, being cuddled. Mm. Husband Evan <laughs> is not that person. And so the question then, you know, and I, here I was like begging him like to cuddle me and hold me and do all these things that like for more than a couple of minutes, he is just not capable of doing. And it was almost, he was feeling like it was unfair that I was asking him to fulfill this need that he really just felt like he couldn't do that. So the negotiation was, Hey, I'm going to go get a massage twice a month for 90 minutes. And this is going to fill this need. And that's like a healthy way of dealing with this. I think if you're going into non-monogamy and expecting other people to like somehow fix your relationship, it's never going to work out. You have to no. get really clear on what those needs are. Explore with each other if that person can fulfill those. And if they can't, then it's like, okay, how can we get this need met? Yeah, and absolutely. Polyamory or non-monogamy in any form is not a solution. I always say it's sort of like if you're struggling to raise one child, uh, the solution is not to have another child. <laughs> you know, like don't invite more people into this mess if it's falling apart, you know. So, but if it is that you're feeling stable, you're feeling secure, and there's just an incompatibility in one or more areas, like you discovered, it's not necessary like that it has to come from another partner. 
get a massage. Some people have a very specific sexual kink. They go to a sex worker and they do that. Like a girl doesn't want to be peed on. Great. I'll pay her. I'll pee on her. Great. You know, like, and, and so there are supplemental ways that can be like kind of transactional as well. There's plenty of ways that you can get needs met with platonic friends, like I mentioned, but it is a reality that having other partners can help us explore parts of ourselves that we don't necessarily explore uh, in a monogamous dynamic. I decided I wanted to be non-monogamous when I was single. It didn't come from a place of like lack or a desire for supplemental connections. I just say like, here's all of the things that I need. Here's all of the things that you need. What's the Venn diagram? What's the overlap of what we both can do with each other? And maybe that's once a month we go hiking. Cool. That's our relationship. But if it is that we are very compatible in a very intimate day-to-day way, great, we'll do that. And so I like that freedom. So there's a lot of ways to go about getting your needs met. Okay, final two questions. The first is, how do I broach the subject with if you're already in a relationship and you're wanting to become open? Oh, that's really tough because it really depends on the dynamic. Like if a person is with someone who has a history of like violent outbursts, I would give them different recommendation than somebody who's in a really secure connection, right? So I guess take a survey of like how safe you feel to bring up an uncomfortable truth or an uncomfortable question. Um, And if it is that you feel safe to do so, just asking like, hey, how do you, how would you feel about this? Um, I've been curious about this. I'm not proposing we do this tomorrow. I would like to talk about the concept with you. Are you open to that? It can help to ask for consent to even have the conversation. Hey, here's the topic. Are you open to it? <laughs> you know, I hope. Um, I think it's the most respectful thing that you can do. And we should be doing that in any challenging conversation is like request time before mm-hmm. we just like dump on people, our needs, you know? Are you in a headspace to talk about this? Are you exhausted from work? Like if you want to have the um, most effective and compassionate conversation possible, see them, see where they're at, you know, Um, see their insecurities and preempt that like, hey, you know, I'm not leaving you, you're safe, you know, Um, reminding them that just having the discussion is not putting them in jeopardy, you know. And so lots of people, like you were saying, will have a lot of talking, sometimes for years before you actually act on it. So I do recommend talking without fear if you feel safe to do so and breaking all the taboos, reading all the things, listening to all the podcasts before jumping in, you know. And then the next question was dating as a non-monogamous person. Someone asked me a great question. They go, do you go on a first date and then tell them you're married with children and that you've been in the partnership for 11 years. And I go, no, (laughs) I do not. First of all, for my own personal safety, just because I don't know this person and how they're going to react to this. And second of all, it's just something that I've agreed upon with my partner. I would consider that cheating. If he began having a conversation with a partner and did not tell her that, you know, he was married and had no intention of having a long-term relationship with her, I would feel betrayed. And so for us personally, and I don't know how it works when you're just more casually or not in a 
you know, partnership or coupleship. It's like, I have it right in my profile and I'm sure that a lot of people, it deters a lot of people, but it's okay. It's like, I have right at the top that I'm in an ethically non-monogamous relationship. Yeah. I think if we don't disclose that up front, then we're not giving the other person an opportunity to consent. We're like taking away their agency to participate in that. So starting a connection in any way, even if it's just a coffee, starting that on a lie is not going to create a nice time for anybody involved. So yeah, it's uncomfortable, but I always rip the bandaid off. You know, if I'm in a dating profile, I always lead with that. Like you said, if it's more like I'm in a casual, you know, friend circle and I think somebody's cute, I'll usually drop the topic at some point just to test the water, you know, or I'll mention like, oh, my partner. And then I'm, while I'm flirting with them, you know, just to see how they're responding to that. Is it a brand new idea for them? Cause me at this point, I don't want to date newcomers. So that's good information. Like if you're asking me some one-on-one questions, okay, well, we're not the right match, but I'd be happy to chat with you more and educate you. You know what I mean? So like, I think just making yourself known, making your structure known is the best way to know if that person is going to be compatible with it. Yeah. I heard something that was so beautiful. Someone sent it to me and a follower who's also Polly. And she said in the traditional monogamy, we often are sold the lie that like this person is our world. And once they opened up, they realized that, no, that person is just a key player in their universe. And I love that. And I want to finish with this because it's a thought that I, that I had following up with this is that like opening back up for me gave me back my autonomy. It allowed me to realize that in so many ways, like I was not prioritizing myself. And of course there is toxic individualism, but then there is also living within this patriarchy and losing yourself, especially as a woman. And I realized that, wow, I had really been putting everybody else's needs above my own. And this has been really like an interesting um, experience for me. And it's the first time in my 30 years that I really feel like I am my own person, that he is his own person. My children are their own people and that there has to be this balance (laughs) between things um, in order for all of us to thrive. And I feel like I hear so many amazing things in your content that just affirm (laughs) that for me. And I would love if you could share with my audience uh, where they can follow along and learn more about the work that you do. Sure. Well, I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Chill Polyamory. I chose that name because I want more visibility of like boring, regular, relaxed polyamory. (laughs) And uh, I offer peer support on chillpolyamory.com. As well, I offer pen pals and I post weekly resources on patreon.com slash chillpolyamory. So I'm busy at the moment. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. This week's affirmation is, I am in alignment with who I truly am. 
And so it is. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor, follow along with us, leave a review. It means so much to me. There are new episodes of Recovering From Reality every Monday, and you can follow me on social at Recovering From Reality or visit my website, recoveringfromreality.com. 